Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I never wanted to be a police officer, at least not in the way some of my colleagues did when they droned on about how they always wanted to be in the police force, even as little kids. How they were always dressed in their precious little policeman costume every Halloween, and did push-ups in their room at night, and went on ride-alongs after they graduated high school. All I actually heard was they were colossal kiss-asses that relished even an iota of authority over others, either real or imagined. Don't get me wrong, I did actually want to be a police officer, and I did feel like I was doing something important. I think that's what made me get out of bed in the morning. But it was also just a job with a decent salary and a good pension, not some sort of phony higher calling. And I knew that I would have to put up with some crap, especially at the beginning. The washout rate of new hires was roughly 50%, so I fully braced myself for all the crap that was expected to come my way. Sorry. I'm probably being a little bit melodramatic. I might be a little jaded after everything I've seen in the past 25 years with the state police. In 1994, I finished the Louisiana State Police Academy and was given my first posting, a patrol assignment during the graveyard shift of 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. Not uncommon for a rookie assignment. My patrol zone was called Le Batu which was actually three adjoining bayou parishes, all situated along the southwest corner of the coast. Labatu had a few working-class towns along the one highway that connected them all, but was ultimately a poor and neglected part of the state. Between the small port towns, Labatu was mostly empty. No movie theaters, no sit-down restaurants, and definitely no available women. I wondered why anyone even bothered to live here, as there were surely better opportunities back towards New Orleans. Admittedly, everything about these bayous that I was assigned to put me on edge. There was just something that I couldn't put my finger on. Maybe it was just the general atmosphere of the place. There were the long, unpaved roads. The dim lights of the oil tankers in the distance. The old, weathered stone forts, covered by vines, and nearly forgotten by time. I got a cold chill down my spine every time I heard the gulf wind softly whistling through the trees. I think the worst part of Le Batu was that you never got the feeling that you were alone. When I would drive between the little towns, the trees seemingly enclosing me, it always felt like there was some dreadful presence out there, barely hidden from view, just waiting, watching. It would have been nice to have a partner to distract me, or even know that there would be backup if it was needed but the state was not known for their fiscal abilities, especially not in those days. 
I guess I should have just been grateful for a patrol car and fuel to put in it. I did have a little company occasionally. A radio dispatch officer was stationed about 50 miles away and handled 911 calls for my section of the state, sending myself and other officers out to wherever we were needed in our respective patrol zones. Other than that, I had little human contact during my shifts. I was called to break up the occasional bar fight or help someone jump their car's battery down at the steel mill, the area's largest employer. Most of my nights I spent cruising on the winding dirt roads along the coast, assuming the local fishermen may have some petty grievances that I would need to sort out. But I always did my job like I was supposed to. I didn't slack off or shirk my responsibilities just because I didn't like my bosses, Le Batu or the Bayou. I showed up on time, responded to calls, and wrote my reports. All by the books. And if the place made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, it didn't matter. I would get a promotion after a year or so and move on to better assignments. All I had to do was swallow my discomfort and pay my dues. One night I was sitting in my patrol car trying to finish an incident report. I had parked off the side of the little dirt road that ran parallel to the coast and connected two small towns. I had picked this place to stop because it was right in front of an old church that I was convinced was abandoned, even if the sign out front was updated every Sunday. It was the only place on this road that wasn't surrounded by trees on either side, and I did not enjoy feeling claustrophobic out here in the dark. The rain was pouring so loudly outside that I could no longer hear the chitter of insects outside. I looked down at my report, which I was struggling with. An old man had called the police to report that his daughter was missing, only for me to find out that the old man didn't remember her name, what year it was, or the fact that the daughter had moved out twenty years ago. I don't know why I even bothered. Absolutely no one was ever going to read this. As I watched rain droplets race down my windshield, I pulled a cigarette out and lit it up. The clock on my radio said 1.47 in the morning. I allowed myself to take pity on myself for a minute. Surely I wasn't going to get promoted for my thorough reports on poor old men with dementia. I rolled down my window enough to flick my cigarette butt out into the road and put it up quickly to keep the rain out. As I was about to take up my incident report again, the police radio lit up, illuminating my patrol car with its soft amber lights as it, and let out a series of crackles. I grabbed the handheld responder, waiting to hear from dispatch. The radio crackled again, this time followed by static. After waiting ten or so seconds, I finally mashed the button on my responder, worried I was missing something important from the head office. Dispatch, this is Patrol 5-7. I missed your last message. Please repeat. Over. After a few seconds, the radio lit up again. Patrol 5-7, this is Dispatch. No message for you at this time. Over. I put my responder down and studied my radio for a second. Maybe it was just some local interference from an AM tower or a trucker and his shortwave radio passing by on the highway about 15 miles north. The radio lit up again, this time going directly to static. I focused intently, trying to make out any words I might hear. The static continued, but a background whine was present as well. Its pitch went higher and lower, almost rhythmically it seemed. I moved my head closer to the radio. Listening as closely as I could, I swear that I heard a voice through the static, spoken as a whisper. Help me! And then all noise from the radio stopped, leaving me in darkness. As I reached up to turn on the overhead light, I could feel my mind churning at a million miles an hour. I took in a big gulp of air and let it out slowly, then grabbed the radio's responder, 
Dispatch, Patrol 5-7 again, please confirm again that no message has been sent. Over. The radio jumped back to life once more. Patrol 5-7, confirming no messages. Likely just interference. Please keep this channel clear, officer. Over. I could tell that there was an air of annoyance in the dispatcher's voice. I might have been a little irritated as well if I were in their shoes. I sighed and put the radio's responder back on its hook. I sat for a minute in the darkness, wondering what I should do next. On one hand, I knew that dispatch was probably right about the message just being interference. Also, I might not have even heard anyone speaking. It could have just been my brain trying to find something human in the overwhelming static. Almost like how you always seem to find faces and bodies in random patterns. On the other hand, I knew I should investigate just in case someone actually did need help. I shuddered at the thought of what horrid situation someone must be in if they're whispering for help on a shortwave radio at two in the morning. There was only one place they could be, the church. When I stepped out of my patrol car onto the dirt road, I was soaked within seconds. I pulled my hat down tightly over my forehead, trying to keep the rain out of my eyes. Then I grabbed the heavy flashlight off of my belt and twisted it on, throwing light on the wooden sign in front of the small ramshackle church. Underneath the church's name was a Bible quote, Rejoice, for he is always present. Unsurprisingly, it wasn't nearly as reassuring as one would hope as I stood in the rain, preparing myself to walk up to the church. There was a narrow drive that led up the side of the property to the church. It must have only been 60 or 70 feet, but in that moment it might as well have been a mile. To the left of the drive was the church's front lawn, the grass tall and overgrown with weeds. To the right, however, was the edge of the bayou forest. The trees and brush were so thick that you could never see more than a few feet in, even in daytime. I don't know what worried me more, the impenetrable jungle or the decrepit church. I slowly walked up the small drive, the mud squelching beneath my feet. I kept my light pointed into the trees lining the right-hand side of the drive, occasionally looking over my shoulder in case the rain drowned out the sound of something behind me. As I looked forward again, something in the trees caught my eyes. When I turned and pointed my flashlight into the brush, a shining pair of eyes were staring back at me. I didn't even get a good look before the eyes disappeared in a flurry of movement, concealed by the thick underbrush. I stood and stared into the jungle for a moment before I realized I was holding my breath. I forced myself to slowly exhale and try to breathe regularly. I shouldn't be this tense. I was a police officer, damn it. What are you going to do next time? Shoot at a raccoon in someone's garbage? Coward. I kicked myself mentally, then forced myself to quickly power myself up the remainder of the drive and onto the steps of the church. I reached the landing in front of the church doors and knocked. Police! I yelled. Is anyone here? I held my ear to the door but didn't hear any movement. I waited for 30 seconds and knocked again. Nothing. I stepped over to the corner of the landing to a small window and peered in. I had to cut my hands around my face to block out the glare of the moonlight. I could see a relatively small room filled with a dozen or so wooden pews and an altar at the back. Behind the altar was an impressively large crucifix with a ceramic figure of Jesus attached to it. Even with almost no light, I could see the pained expression on his face. Enough of this, I thought. If there's someone here, they've had ample warning. I grabbed the doorknob and gave it a try. Surprisingly, it turned. The door was unlocked. 
I gave the door a slight push and stepped back as it swung open with a soft groan. I pointed the flashlight into the meager room, dutifully examining every corner before I entered. I took a few steps in and yelled again, Police, is there anyone here? When no one answered, I went down the aisle between the two rows of pews. I could see a thin layer of dust on each of the wooden benches. I got the impression that this church hasn't had any congregants in a while. As I walked, it felt like the ceramics figure's eyes were following me, no matter where I stepped. Even when I looked down at each pew, I could feel the eyes in the side of my head, and I would quickly turn back to face the altar. I found a doorway to my left when I finally made it up to the altar. The door was open and I pointed my light into the dark room. There was a small kitchen with old appliances lining the far wall, a sink on one end, and a round wooden table with four chairs. I found a light switch on the wall when I walked into the kitchen. The room began to softly hum as the fluorescent lights above the kitchen table came on. I'm not sure why I didn't look for a switch in the main room when I first entered the church. Maybe the building looked so old to me that I just assumed it didn't have electricity. That's ridiculous, I thought. Even the poorest areas of Labatu at least have electricity and running water, regardless of how low my opinion of it was. Standing at the entrance to the kitchen, there was one door to my right, along with a window next to it, overlooking what I assumed was the backside of the church building. When I stepped over to the window and peered out, I shuddered. It was the church's cemetery filled with tall granite headstones, most of them covered with black mildew from decades of rain and neglect. Behind the headstones was a forest of reeds. I realized that it must be a marsh or some sort of tidal area. These weren't uncommon on the coast, obviously, and I imagined all of the local wildlife hiding just a few steps into the marsh, waiting for their next meal. In the other corner of the room, towards the front of the church, was yet another door, if there was anyone here, this was the only other place they could be. Having a bit more courage with the light on, I marched towards the door and quickly flung it open. The brightness of the kitchen contrasted with the darkness of this new room, made me stop for a few seconds and let my eyes readjust. When I could finally see clearly again, I found myself looking into a bedroom that appeared to be mostly empty. I saw a small television in front of me, sitting on top of weathered gray carpet. In the corner was a short wooden dresser with what appeared to be an old radio on top, and then I noticed the twin bed in the far corner. I stopped still. There was someone in the bed. I could see what I assumed was the back of an old man's head, based on the short white hair. In the narrow corridor of light coming from the kitchen, I tiptoed towards the bed. It felt like an eternity to cover the few steps to the old man, but when I finally made it, I gently laid my hand on his shoulder. I didn't even try to shake the old man awake. He was so stiff and so cold that even I, inexperienced as I was, knew he was dead. Radio dispatch told me it would be several hours before a coroner would arrive to pronounce the old priest dead and fill out the relevant paperwork. Until then, I was to stay put and keep the area secure. Fortunately, no one was around to see me roll my eyes at this command. I decided to sit at the church's small kitchen table to do my paperwork with the bedroom's door firmly shut. I didn't like my directions to secure the scene, whatever that meant, but I didn't feel like waiting in my patrol car was technically what I was supposed to be doing. It was probably safer to hang out inside and keep an eye on things. 
Besides, after the whispered message on the radio, I oddly felt safer in the outdated kitchen than I did outside in my dimly lit squad car in the middle of nowhere. But this did raise an important question to me. Was the message that I heard real? I mean, it did lead me to finding the old man. Or was it simply a coincidence? Most priests that I had encountered here in the bayous were fairly old, so this scenario didn't seem particularly unlikely. But if it was real, how did it get sent? Did the priest contact me beyond the grave? Why would he need help? Unfortunately, I didn't have time to dwell on it. I could hear a soft buzz coming from the bedroom. I sat in silence for a moment, unsure of what was happening. Hesitantly, I stood up and went over to the bedroom door as the buzzing grew louder. I slowly turned the knob and pushed the door open, keeping one hand on the wall inside the kitchen. Then I knew exactly what the noise was. Atop the wooden dresser in the corner, the radio was on, and emitting the same static that I had heard in my patrol car earlier. I don't know if I stayed in the doorway because I was so terrified that my legs refused to work, or because I was simply dumbfounded. Either way, I stood in place, transfixed on the radio. The radio did the same pattern as before, static with a background whine whose frequency went higher and lower in a uniform pattern. But then, abruptly, all noise stopped. Help me! A voice screamed at me from the radio. My heart sank. This time, there was no mistaking the message for my imagination. And even worse, the voice was not that of an old man, but instead of a child. A boy. I don't know what I expected to happen, but for some reason, in the panic of the moment, I decided to yell out. Where are you? Are you in trouble? I stood, still frozen in the doorway, holding my breath, and waiting for the radio to give me an answer. Instead, the radio let out a gentle humming noise. As I stood and listened, the hum gradually got louder and louder, switching from a hum to a whine. Before I knew it, a high-pitched squeal was filling the church and rattling every bone inside my head, making me feel like my brain was in a vice. As a final act, the radio sent out a shower of sparks from its corner of the room, briefly illuminating it like the flash of a lightning strike. Thump. I jumped squeezing my eyes shut and clenching my fists. The noise had come from behind me, near the back door to the cemetery. When I turned around, nothing seemed out of place, but the noise had clearly come from outside. I peeked back into the bedroom. The priest was still there. A scorched radio sat in its place on top of the dresser. I decided that the poor old man wouldn't go anywhere and nervously grabbed my flashlight from the kitchen table. As I moved towards the back door, I realized where the noise had come from. On the window was a handprint. It was small, the size of a child's hand. But I had looked out of this window earlier and didn't notice any handprint. It had to be new. When I got to the window, I could see that the handprint was a dirty brown color, almost like whoever's hand that made this print had been covered in mud. I felt the hot, moist air hit me as I opened the back door. It had finally quit raining, allowing me to step outside without being drenched. I shined my flashlight down the worn concrete steps and into the cemetery. The headstones certainly didn't look any less ominous than they did from the window earlier. As I stepped down the steps and into the cemetery, I looked at one of the headstones. Michel Levesque had died and been buried here in 1849. How old was this place? There must have been 50 or so headstones in this cemetery, all in similar states of disrepair. Most of them were standing off kilter and nearly black from decades of Louisiana weather. 
Keeping this place maintained must not have been part of the deceased's duties. I moved deliberately through the small graveyard, pointing my light behind each of the headstones as I went past. If the priest had been alive, he probably could have heard my heart pound from inside his bedroom. I kept moving until I reached the last row of graves. I stopped. On the back of the headstone nearest to me was another small, muddy handprint. Swoosh. It was the sound of reeds brushing together. I twisted my head over towards the marsh, just a dozen steps or so behind the cemetery. Standing directly in front of head-high reeds was a boy, who couldn't have been older than eight or nine years old. I don't know why this sticks out in my memory, but I distinctly remember that he was wearing a scout's uniform, dark blue with the classic shorts and high socks, badges littering his chest. Then I saw his face. His eyes were entirely black. They were so intensely dark that he may not have even had eyes for all I knew. This was a distinct contrast to his face, which was a sickly shade of white, bordering on translucent. On his face, there was an unmistakable expression of sadness. The boy's expression soured as he tilted his head. He opened his mouth, and I fully expected to hear a foul, ear-piercing scream. Instead, what came out was barely a whisper. Why won't you help me? The boy murmured woefully. Then in a swift motion, he turned and began walking along the edge of the marsh. I stood in stunned silence for what felt like hours. Watching the boy move away from me, I realized that I had to act. Somehow, I convinced my legs to overcome whatever fear or inertia that was holding me in place and followed after the child, or ghost, or whatever had just stood in front of me. I followed behind the boy, alongside the thicket of reeds that outlined the marsh. He was moving much faster than I expected, and I had to pick up my pace to keep him in my sights. We left the boundary of the church's backyard and into the thick bayou brush. I kept my eyes on the boy as I dodged vines and fallen trees, but he always seemed to be a fair distance ahead of me. Only when I had reached a small clearing did I lose the boy entirely. I spun around, swinging my flashlight wildly. Somehow, I had managed to keep a hold of it in the scramble through the woods. There was nothing. Somehow, I had lost the boy and found myself standing in ankle-high mud. I strained my eyes as I looked around, desperate to find a sign of where he had gone. Why would he bring me out here? Was it to kill me? Was this some kind of trap? My heart suddenly picked up its pace. I was desperate to get out of this swamp as quickly as I could. I told myself that as soon as I got back to the church, I would jump in my patrol car and get out of this nightmare. Dead priest be damned. The coroner could figure it all out in the daylight. Help me. The whisper behind me threw my heart into a frenzy, and I panicked, attempting to turn and back away at the same time only to fall on my back into the sticky mud I had been standing in. The boy was now a few feet away, still with the look of despair on his face. Unexpectedly, he turned himself to the side and pointed towards the marsh beside him. Help me, he whispered again. I finally knew why I had been brought here. Slowly I stood myself up, trying to remove the mud off my hands and arms. I stood still for a moment, watching the little boy. He stood firmly like a statue, still pointing into the marsh. I gave him a wide berth as I crept around him, making sure to never face away. When I got a few feet away, I let myself look at where he was pointing, trying to keep him in my field of vision. I searched around in the mud for a moment, unsure of what I was looking for. Then I saw it. A small circular object stuck partway out of the marsh. I stared at it for a second. My thoughts scrambled. 
but when I picked it up I knew exactly what it was. A merit badge. Is this? I started to ask as I turned back to the boy, but the boy was gone. Somehow, in the half-second I had turned away from him, he had vanished. I turned back to where I had found the merit badge and dropped to my knees, halfway sinking into the muck. And then I started to dig, frantically scooping mud away with my hands. I dug with an urgency that I didn't even know existed in me, and I found myself breathing heavily, realizing that the waterlogged muck was much heavier than I expected. But I knew that I couldn't stop, not until I had found the boy. I finally cleared all of the mud off of the boy's body sometime after sunrise. I had thought about bringing him back up to the church, as it seemed like the decent thing to do, but realized that he would have to be photographed and documented by the coroner and crime scene group. I was busy chain-smoking the rest of my cigarettes on the front steps of the church when the coroner finally arrived. Seeing me covered in mud and nervously tapping my foot, the coroner sent me home to shower and take a nap before I was to come to the dispatch office to give my statement to another officer. I gave my statement to the best of my memory, radio, ghost, and all. I knew that they would say I was either crazy or lying, and I worried that I may end up on an even worse patrol or potentially fired, but there was no other reasonable explanation for how I had found the boy's body. When the statement was typed up and handed to me to sign, I realized that almost everything about the radio and the boy had been left out, I signed it. No one ever brought it up again. I certainly didn't. Not until now. They solved the boy's case pretty quickly. He had been missing since 1981, and the original investigator had always suspected the boy's father, but had never been able to make a case without a body. Apparently the marsh, with its thick mud squeezing out any oxygen, had preserved the boy's body so well that there was enough remaining trace evidence to finally convict the father. I think he's still on death row, appeal pending. As for the priest, the coroner determined that he died of natural causes, a heart attack, miles away from any sort of help. The archdiocese had assigned a new priest to the old church within a few days, a fairly young guy too. I felt sorry for him, considering everything that happened there. If it were up to me, I would have had the place torn down. I still don't know why the boy picked me. Why he didn't reach out to the priest still doesn't make sense to me. Maybe he did, for all I know. But I remember that I didn't sleep normally for a week after that horrible night at the church. Every time I turned a corner, my heart raced, expecting him to be standing there. The memory of his desperate face and pointing towards his marshy grave etched into my memory. I visit the marsh every year. Sometimes I bring flowers and place them at the edge of the marsh. I know that the boy isn't physically there anymore, and I hope that whatever part of him that remained and led me to his body has finally left. Maybe that's why I visit, just to reassure myself that he's not still there. I always make sure to bring along a radio. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. 
It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Every year, as the leaves began their gradual shift from lush green to a medley of fiery hues, I'd carve out a slice of solitude from the chaotic pastry of everyday life. It was my annual ritual, a sanctum of serenity amidst the relentless tide of work, bills, and mundane chores that seemed to erect walls around my spirit. I'd take a week off work, retreating into a cocoon of self-reflection and quiet joys. It was a necessary pilgrimage to the core of my being, a chance to breathe the crisp autumn air and feel alive amidst the stillness of nature. The world seemed to slow down, offering a gentle pause to the frantic rhythm of existence. The tradition had simple joys. One night it might be the comforting embrace of my old couch, a pizza warming my lap and horror films flickering ghostly shadows across the room. Another day it would be a visit to a local farm where the humble pumpkins and apples lay nestled amidst the whispers of dried leaves awaiting the caress of choosing hands. But the crown jewel of my autumnal retreat was always the hike. There was a sacred communion in the rhythm of my boots against the earth, the whisper of the wind through the skeletal branches, and the silent tales etched in the aged bark of the woodland sentinels. I had my favorite trails, each a well-worn friend that cradled my thoughts as I wandered through the tapestry of foliage. This year, however, the winds of change carried a whisper of adventure. A fellow outdoor enthusiast, Justin, had spun tales of an unmarked trail nestled about 45 minutes from my dwelling. His eyes had danced with the flame of uncharted wonders as he shared his experience. It wasn't a marked trail, he'd said, but the whispers of countless feet had etched a path through the verdant wild. He'd even left some markers on his last sojourn and suggested I do the same. It was a call to the wild a beckoning finger curling through the veils of the known, urging me to step into the embrace of the unknown. With a blend of anticipation and the silent hum of anxiety, I prepared for this solitary expedition. The day arrived wrapped in a cool mist that kissed my cheeks as I stepped into the embrace of dawn. I notified my parents and my significant other at the time, grounding my venture in the comforting web of their awareness. The drive was a meditative prelude the road a gray ribbon slicing through the waking countryside, leading me to the gateway of my adventure. I parked where Justin had recommended, donned my gear, and shouldered my backpack, a vessel of essentials, and a batch of small flags to mark my passage. As I stood at the threshold of the forest, I could see what Justin had meant. There was no official signage, yet a subtle path beckoned, woven by the souls of those who'd ventured before me. The flags I carried bore small crosses, silent guardians that would guide my return. With a deep breath, I stepped onto the unseen path, each stride a paragraph in the first chapter of today's story. The canopy seemed to hush as I delved deeper, the world folding into the embrace of solitude and the whispers of the wild. Each rustle of the leaves was a soft murmur, each beam of sunlight breaking through the foliage was a gentle caress and each breath was a silent ode to the ephemeral beauty of existence. And so, 
with the heart of an explorer, I embarked on the trail to the unknown, little knowing the veil of eerie enigma that awaited amidst the rustle of autumn leaves. The forest seemed to cradle my every step as I ventured deeper into its leaf-strewn heart. The silence around me was not of a void, but of a full, vibrant quiet, where every rustle of leaves whispered ancient tales. The path, though unmarked, seemed to have a pulse of its own, subtly guiding me through the foliage. But amidst the tranquil embrace, my mind was an untamed river, cascading over rocks of worry and pools of contemplation. The more I delved into the labyrinth of thought, the more the woods around seemed to echo the tumult within. As the sun cast long, golden fingers through the branches, I decided to pause, to sit and ruminate over a meager meal. I found a mossy patch near a gentle brook, the soft babble of water weaving through the stillness. As I munched on my provisions and sipped on cool water, I tried to untangle the web of worries knotting my mind. And then, in a fleeting moment, the symphony of nature fell into an eerie pause. The babble ceased, the rustle hushed, and even the wind seemed to hold its breath. An uncanny silence enveloped the woods, as if nature itself had turned its gaze inward. I clapped my hands, half expecting the echo to be swallowed by the void. But the sound rippled through, breaking the spell, and the forest exhaled, resuming its gentle murmur. I shook off the eerie feeling, attributing it to a mind overworked and eyes tired. The path awaited, and with a renewed resolve I ventured forth. But as I retraced my steps, a cold breath of doubt brushed against my resolve. The small flags, my humble markers, seemed to have shifted, morphing the familiar path into an enigma. I hastened my steps, each stride now carrying a weight of urgency. I reached for my keys, the car alarm a distant call back to reality. But silence greeted my ears, the reassuring beep lost in the wilderness. My heart pounded a rhythm of unease as I quickened my pace. The shadows grew longer, the light dimmer, and the path less familiar. Each flag now seemed a mocking reminder of the shifting reality I tread upon. As I scurried through the now menacing woods, every rustle seemed a whisper of dread, every shadow a cloak of unseen eyes. The path twisted and turned, leading me further into the grasp of the unknown. I stopped, breaths ragged, eyes darting through the dim light. A suffocating veil of fear threatened to engulf my reason. I clenched my fists, the cold sweat mingling with the dirt on my palms. With a rallying breath I continued, each step a prayer, each breath a plea for the comforting embrace of the known. The path seemed to stretch into eternity, the exit a mirage that danced just beyond reach. As I stumbled through the veil of fear, a glimmer of hope ignited within. The unseen path had become a crucible, forging resilience with each step into the unknown. But little did I know, as I trudged through the eerie silence, the unseen eyes that watched from the veil awaited in the heart of the wilderness, ready to unveil the overgrown shed of dread that lurked in the unseen corners of the path I tread. The sinister silence of the forest weighed heavily upon my chest as I trudged through the underbrush, my heart pounding against the cage of my ribs. Each rustle in the thicket sent a shiver skittering down my spine. The misplaced markers seemed to jeer at me, each flag a taunting specter in the gloaming. But I pressed on, the pull of the unknown a cruel master. Then, as if molded by the hands of fate, the markers led me to a clearing. At the heart of it lay what I first took to be a moss-covered boulder. 
Yet as I neared, the silhouette morphed into a structure, an overgrown shed that seemed to brood under the heavy cloak of ivy and leaves. I approached it, each step a note in a dirge, a prelude to the unknown. My breaths came in shallow gasps, the dread a cold vice around my lungs. Then, as if waking from a long slumber, the shed shuddered. The door creaked open with a loud crack, tearing through the silence like a cry in the night. From the dark maw of the shed emerged a hand. It gestured, a crooked finger beckoning me into the shadows. My heart screamed a silent scream as terror coursed through my veins. The world spun as I turned on my heel, the flight instinct propelling me through the wilderness. Branches clawed at my flesh as I sprinted through the underbrush, the eerie gesture haunting my steps. Each shadow seemed to dance with sinister glee, the forest a monstrous entity with unseen eyes. I fumbled for my keys, my fingers trembling as I hit the car alarm button once more. And then, like a chorus of angels, the distant beep of my car alarm pierced the ominous silence. It called out, a beacon of hope in the murky gloom. With renewed vigor, I raced towards the sound, each beep a step closer to reality, a step farther from the nightmarish realm I had stumbled into. The world seemed to brighten with each stride, the sinister veil lifting ever so slightly. Finally, breaking through the last vestiges of wilderness, I emerged into the clearing where my car stood. The sight was a balm to the terror-seared crevices of my soul. I stumbled towards it, the keys trembling in my hand as I unlocked the door and plunged into the sanctuary of the known. With trembling fingers I ignited the engine, the purr of the motor a sweet lullaby against the eerie echo of the forest's dread. I sped away, the wilderness dissolving into a blur of nightmarish memories in the rearview mirror. I drove non-stop till I reached the first rest stop. As I parked and the engine's hum died down, the reality of the ordeal cascaded over me. I sat there, trying to stitch the reality around the gaping wound of terror that the day had inflicted. The sinister trail had morphed into a tale of eerie mystery, the faceless terror a dark silhouette on the canvas of my mind. Whether it was a macabre prank, a sinister intent, or a figment of stress-induced hallucination, I knew not. But one thing was crystal clear. The solitude I once sought in the heart of the wild had morphed into a cruel maze of dread. I vowed then, the somber moon a witness, never to tread the unseen path alone. And as I drove back into the embrace of civilization, the eerie echo of the unseen trail lingered, a ghostly whisper amidst the rustle of autumn leaves. I still remember the autumn of 1984 as if it was yesterday. The leaves in the quaint town of Scotchtown, New York, were just beginning to kiss goodbye to their green hues, embracing the warm tones of fall. The slight chill in the air was a whisper of the winter that was to come, but for now, the remaining warmth of summer still cradled the town. It was around this time that my friends Brian, Mike, and I, all sixteen and brimming with the restless energy of youth, decided to venture into the unknown that lay beyond the town, the dense enigmatic woods that had always beckoned yet repelled us with its silent eerie call. The day we decided to go camping was filled with the kind of unbridled enthusiasm that only the naivety of youth could foster. We were three musketeers ready to conquer the unknown, with nothing but our brimming excitement to shield us from the eerie whispers of the woods. 
we gathered our modest camping supplies with the pocket money we had saved over the summer. The trip to the Army and Amp Navy store felt like gearing up for a grand adventure. We got ourselves a surplus Army tent, some pots, and pans. Brian got a lantern that cast a comforting glow, promising to keep the sinister shadows at bay. We all bought old military K-Bar knives. Their cold steel was reassuring against our palms. As Friday arrived, the day of our expedition, we managed to convince our parents that we were staying over at each other's houses. The little white lie seemed harmless, a small price for the adventure that awaited. We rendezvoused at Mike's house, our hearts thumping against our ribs with anticipation as we shouldered our backpacks, ready to venture into the wilderness. The walk to the chosen camping site was filled with boyish banter and laughter that echoed through the stillness of the approaching evening. The familiar path we often tread during daylight now seemed to transform as shadows lengthened with the setting sun. The old stone wall that marked the trail was a silent witness to the many souls that had wandered through these woods, its cold stones whispering tales of the bygone era. As we ventured deeper, the comforting warmth of the day seemed to retreat, leaving behind a chill that seemed to seep into our bones. The eerie silence of the woods was now only interrupted by the crunch of dried leaves under our boots. We finally reached our chosen campsite as the sun bid adieu, casting long eerie shadows that danced ominously to the tune of the whispering wind. We set up our tent under a towering old tree, its leaves rustling with secrets of the woods. As Brian and Mike went to gather firewood, the reality of the encroaching night began to weigh heavy on my heart. I began setting up the tent. The silence around me now only broken by the occasional distant rustle as my friends gathered wood. As I unfurled the tent, a sudden cold gust of wind sent a shiver down my spine. I glanced around. The woods now seemed to close in, its dark canopy casting ghostly silhouettes against the dying light. It was then that I saw it. A shadow. A dark figure lurking behind the old oak tree on the other side of the stone wall. My blood turned to ice as it peered from behind the tree its silhouette an ominous omen of the sinister reality that awaited us. My breath caught in my throat as I froze, the eerie image of the shadow forever etched against the haunting backdrop of the Scotch-Toon woods. I stood there, alone, the eerie silence now ringing loud with the sinister secrets that lay within the heart of the woods. As the night grew darker, an uncanny silence enveloped the woods around us. The comforting crackle of the fire Brian and Mike had managed to ignite felt like the only tether keeping the eerie unknown at bay. We huddled around the warmth, the flickering flames casting long, dancing shadows that seemed to meld with the darkness beyond. Despite the unsettling event earlier, I chose to keep the sighting of the dark figure to myself. I didn't want to be the one to break the adventurous spirit that hung in the chilly air. But as we roasted some marshmallows and shared tales of our mundane high school life, the rustlings began. At first, we dismissed it as mere whispers of the wind, perhaps a curious animal inspecting the intruders of its domain. But as the rustling grew louder and more pronounced, it was clear that something or someone was circling our campsite. The sound seemed deliberate, echoing the growing tension among us. Brian, always the brave one, decided to take charge. Picking up a thick, sturdy branch, he hurled it towards the source of the rustling, hoping to scare away whatever was lurking around. A heavy thud echoed as the branch hit the ground, followed by an eerie silence that seemed to carry a warning within its cold, hollow embrace. For a brief moment, we sighed with relief, 
but our solace was short-lived. The rustling resumed, now with a rhythm that echoed the beating of our anxious hearts. The sinister dance continued, the unseen entity pacing back and forth in the darkness just beyond the firelight. Each step it took seemed to draw a breath out of us, the darkness around growing thicker with our mounting fear. Brian, losing patience, and perhaps driven by a touch of fear, hurled another log towards the unsettling noise. The silence that followed was eerie. And then, without warning, the log came flying back towards us, crashing against the tree with a force that sent shivers down our spines. We stared at each other, the reality of our peril now dawning upon us like the cold moonlight that filtered through the dense canopy above. Mike, attempting to lighten the mood, joked about the ghostly tales associated with these woods, but his laughter found no company. The fear in our eyes was a reflection of the unseen terror that lurked around us. The decision to abandon the eerie campsite was unanimous and immediate. We hastily packed our belongings, the urgency driven by the unseen eyes that seemed to pierce through the darkness, watching our every move. As we stepped onto the dark trail that led out of the woods, the unseen entity seemed to follow. The rustling was now accompanied by a chill that seemed to sweep through the woods, as if guiding us away, away from the sinister heart of Scotchtown Woods. As we ventured further into the darkness, each step took us away from the eerie campsite, but closer to the unknown that lay ahead. Our hearts pounded against the eerie melody of the night, each rustling leaf whispering tales of the unseen terror that now walked beside us. The path leading out of the woods was a narrow, winding trail that seemed to stretch endlessly into the ominous heart of darkness. Our hurried steps crunched against the fallen leaves, the echo a reminder of the unseen dread that lingered in the shadows. The lantern in Brian's hand cast a feeble glow, enough to guide our steps, but not enough to unmask the terror that lurked beyond the veil of darkness. As we paced through the eerie trail, a sinister orchestra played around us, the rustling of leaves, the creaking of branches, and our pounding hearts keeping a rhythm that resonated with the unknown entity that now seemed to walk parallel to us on the other side of the stone wall. The cold wind carried whispers of ancient fears as we pushed forward, desperate to break free from the sinister clasp of the Scotch-tune woods. Suddenly, the rustling grew louder, the unseen entity pacing faster, as if matching our escalating fear. Brian, in a desperate bid, suggested we sprint as fast as we could, hoping to outpace the unseen stalker. With a deep breath and a prayer on our lips, we dashed through the dark path, the cold wind slashing against our faces as we sprinted for our lives. But the entity was relentless. We could hear it chasing us, its steps a haunting echo in the shadows. Every rustling leaf felt like a whisper of doom, urging us to run faster into the abyss that lay ahead. As we raced through the night, a sinister realization dawned upon me. No one knew we were here. Our little white lie to our parents now seemed like a noose tightening around our necks. The thought sent a chill deeper than the cold night air coursing through my veins. Without a warning, Brian halted, his lantern revealing the dead end that lay ahead. The trail seemed to vanish into a thicket of trees, the darkness beyond almost palpable. Our breaths came out in ragged gasps, the terror now a cold, heavy stone in our chests. The rustling stopped, replaced by a deafening silence that seemed to mock our desperate plight. The unseen entity was now just beyond the stone wall, its presence a shadow of doom cast upon our souls. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a soft, eerie whisper that carried through the wind, 
encircling us with a chant that seemed to come from the depths of the woods. The chant grew louder, morphing into a sinister hum that resonated with the ancient stones of the wall, as if awakening the ghosts of the past. Brian, Mike, and I clung to each other, our eyes wide open against the darkness that now seemed to close in, the eerie hum wrapping around us like a shroud. As the hum grew louder, the ground beneath trembled, the ancient stones of the wall shaking against the wrath of the unseen. Suddenly, a cold, ghostly hand emerged from the shadows, its touch a deathly cold as it brushed against my skin. The world around seemed to spiral into a void of darkness as the eerie chant reached a deafening crescendo, plunging us into an abyss from which there was no return. The terror of that night was an unseen chain that bound us to the sinister heart of Scotchtown Woods, a haunting memory that would forever lurk in the shadows of our past. Despite my fondness for autumn, it always ushers in a chilling memory from my past. My nature-loving soul had always found solace in the outdoors, be it through hiking, sports, or beach outings. Around a decade ago, during my high school days, my parents enrolled me in a school-organized camping and hiking excursion to the nearby mountains. The idea was thrilling for many reasons, the prime one being the promise of a school-free Friday. I persuaded a bunch of my pals to join, all of us thrilled about a nature-soaked weekend away from the usual hustle. As the day arrived, we embarked on a picturesque hike along a beginner-friendly trail on a local mountain. By evening, our group, comprising about 15 students and three teachers, set up camp. The first night, my friends and I, huddled in a shared tent, faced a scolding from a teacher due to our violation of the 10 p.m. lights-out rule. Our excitement for the recently released Pokemon X and Y on our Nintendo DSs had kept us awake and boisterous well past bedtime. With our gadgets confiscated, the eerie silence of the night took over, filling my ears with ambiguous rustlings outside the tent. Sleep eluded me as my mind waltzed between the possibilities of wild animals or vigilant teachers. The next day, though exhausted, the allure of the trail rekindled my spirits. However, a daring proposal from a friend to venture out of our tents post-darkness hung in the air. Despite my apprehensions towards rule-breaking, the call of the wild gaming session proved irresistible. As dusk descended, we feigned early retirement to our sleeping bags, only to sneak out into the midnight wilderness later. With a heart thudding against the thrill and the unknown, we distanced ourselves from the camp to a secluded spot where our DSs roared back to life. The first half hour felt like an adventurous movie scene, the essence of youth captured amidst chirping crickets and star-studded skies. But soon the script took a dark twist. A rustle in the bushes froze us in fear. As a figure emerged, initially mistaken for a bear, the reality was equally unsettling. A man, seemingly in his forties, calmly made his way towards us. The eerie calmness of his demeanor, his unusual presence in the woods, and his decent yet worn-out attire painted an unnerving picture. He joined our semicircular arrangement on a tree stump, his eyes fixated on the ground as silence enveloped the eerie gathering. A mutual, unspoken consensus propelled us back towards our camp. But as we rose, so did the mysterious man, mirroring our movements with a robotic ease, void of any emotion. Panic spurred our feet faster towards the camp, but a glance back revealed the man's leisurely jog following our trail. His emotionless chase under the ghostly moonlight was a scene etched in horror. 
We darted into our tents, the zippers sealing away the eerie reality outside, or so we hoped. With hearts pounding against the silent night, we vowed to keep the night's escapade a secret, fearing the repercussions of our forbidden venture more than the nightmarish chase. As dawn broke, liberating us from the nocturnal terror, we marched out of the woods, the eerie encounter buried deep within, yet resurfacing with every rustle in the autumn winds thereafter. A few nights ago, I embarked on a desert adventure to Joshua Tree National Park with three close companions. We booked a quaint Airbnb, nestled amidst the wilderness, accessible only via a rugged, unpaved trail. Our nearest neighbor was miles away, with each dwelling in the vicinity boasting its private driveway. One dusk, while returning from a grocery run, I caught a glimpse of a creature scurrying away from the glare of our headlights. Given its size, I brushed it off as a deer, although the only fauna we'd encountered till then were desert quails. That night, my dreams carried me and a friend into a mysterious basement, laden with peculiar trinkets, within a modest house marked by a crimson door. Though the memory of what lay inside eludes me, I often pondered if it bore any connection to our desert sojourn. They say dreams often mirror reality, after all. A couple of nights later, under a canvas of twinkling stars, we ignited a bonfire to ward off the desert chill. Nature's call beckoned, and I excused myself briefly. Upon return, I found our cozy circle by the fire broken. My two friends were nowhere in sight. After a futile wait, a search ensued which led us to the eerie silence of the house. The desert night carried no echo of our calls, but the stillness was broken by a series of coughs emanating from the pool area. We recognized the cough. One of our friends had been nursing a cold. Urgency propelled our feet towards the sound, hearts pounding with concern. Yet, our calls yielded no response, only the repetition of that haunting cough, eerily mimicking our ailing friend. The silence of the desert was now overruled by the rhythm of our racing hearts and the ghostly cough that led us on. The enigma deepened when, from the opposite end of the dwelling, our friends emerged, oblivious to our frantic calls, the eerie coughing, or our concerned faces. The realization hit like a cold wave. The cough was a mere lure, a sinister mimicry. As they approached, they confirmed our fears. They'd heard nothing, and the coughing wasn't theirs. A shiver trailed down my spine. The desert's eerie silence now whispered of unseen watchers. Amidst the vast wilderness, we were but mere trespassers, entangled in a mystery that echoed with each ghostly cough in the haunting emptiness of the desert night. The surreal experience left us questioning. Was it a brush with the supernatural, a skinwalker's trick, or a not-deer's lure? Now, as the veil of the desert night unravels, I sit here entwined in thoughts, pondering if a cleansing is what I seek to erase the eerie mimicry that haunts my memories. Our senses were sharp, unclouded by the mild intoxicants we indulged in later that night. The eerie mimicry was a reality too stark to be blurred by transient whims of the mind. The crisp whispers of autumn have always held a special charm for Mark and me. The way the leaves gently let go of their branches, painting the world with hues of gold and crimson, was a sight we never tired of. Our love story found its roots in the heart of October, nestled amidst the laughter of Halloween 
and the warm, spicy scent of pumpkin pies. It wasn't just the season. It was a reminder of the day we vowed to navigate the journey of life together. As the cool October breeze brushed against our faces, we found ourselves amidst a sea of pumpkins once again. It was our tradition, a sweet endeavor that marked the beginning of our love for autumn festivities. Every year we would visit the large pumpkin patch located a few hours away from our quaint little home. It was a spectacle of nature, the vast field dotted with pumpkins of every shape and size, the laughter of children resonating through the crisp air. Mark always had a childlike enthusiasm about him. His eyes would light up as we strolled through the rows of pumpkins, his hands eagerly feeling the surface of each one, searching for the perfect pumpkin to adorn our porch. I, on the other hand, was content with sipping on hot apple cider, the warmth of the mug seeping through my fingers, chasing away the chill. Our first anniversary was no different, or so I thought, as we made our way through the pumpkin patch. The sun cast a golden glow on the field, and the world seemed to be basking in the beauty of love that October had cradled in its heart. We had decided to take it easy that weekend, to soak in the tranquility that nature generously offered. As the day unfolded, we found ourselves seated on a hay bale, a live band serenading the crowd with soft country tunes. The delicate notes of the guitar intertwined with the sweet scent of apple cider donuts, creating a melody that tugged at the heartstrings. It was surreal, a moment frozen in time, a reminder of the simple joys that life offered. But as the shadows grew longer, I could sense a restlessness in Mark. The calmness of the afternoon had ignited a spark of adventure in him. He was not ready to bid farewell to the day, not yet. As we packed our little basket, ready to head home, he looked at me with a gleam in his eyes, a hint of mischief dancing in the depths of his gaze. Hey, how about a little hike? There's a beautiful trail not far from here. It will be fun, he chimed, his face lighting up at the mere thought of it. I was not the hiking type, but the sparkle in his eyes was hard to resist. Little did I know, as I nodded in agreement, that this seemingly innocent adventure would unravel a chapter in our lives that would haunt us for the years to come. A chapter that threatened to overshadow the innocent charm that October held, replacing the warmth with a chill that went beyond the autumn air. The proposal for a hike seemed harmless, a mere extension to our whimsical day. The sun was still high, casting a soft glow on the leaves as they rustled gently in the breeze. We drove to the nearby park that Mark had in mind, chatting about the beautiful views we'd encounter. As we approached the park, my heart sank at the sight of the closed gates. A large sign boldly declared the park closed for renovations until next spring. I looked at Mark, expecting him to turn the car around, but he had a different spark in his eyes. His adventurous spirit wasn't dampened by the closure. Instead, he pointed at the handful of cars parked outside, insisting that a short stroll wouldn't hurt. His logic was flawed, but his excitement was infectious. Against my better judgment, I found myself following him past the gates. The trespassing signs were hard to ignore as we ventured onto the forbidden trail. The trees stood tall, their leaves forming a golden canopy that seemed to hide the world's prying eyes. The silence was eerie, broken only by the crunching leaves under our feet. The further we went, the more the reality of our trespassing weighed on me. Every rustle in the bushes sent a shiver down my spine. The fear of getting caught was growing with every step. But Mark seemed unbothered, his eyes fixated on the beauty that surrounded us. His laughter echoed through the woods as he reminisced about our little adventures from the past. 
His cheerful demeanor eased my anxiety, and for a moment, I lost myself in the serenity that enveloped us. However, the serenity was short-lived. As we rounded a bend, a strange structure emerged from behind the veil of leaves. It was a small shack, oddly new amidst the wilderness. It stood there, an anomaly in the midst of the ancient trees that surrounded it. Mark's curiosity was piqued, and before I could voice my concerns, he was leading the way towards the shack. As we approached, the eerie silence was replaced by muffled voices emanating from within. Panic surged through my veins. I grabbed Mark's arm, urging him to turn back, but he was determined to satisfy his curiosity. We crept closer, the voices growing louder yet indistinct. My heart raced as we stood by the shack's window, the fear of the unknown clenching my stomach into tight knots. Mark signaled for me to stay quiet as he peered through the window. The world seemed to hold its breath, the silence wrapping around us like a shroud. And then, his face turned ghostly white, his eyes widened in terror. Before I could ask what he saw, he was pulling me away, his grip on my hand tightening with every step as we sprinted back through the forbidden trail. The bliss of the morning seemed like a distant dream as the reality of our reckless adventure settled in. The tranquility of the woods now seemed like a facade hiding sinister secrets. As we raced back to our car, the silence between us was loud, echoing the fear that gripped our hearts. The peaceful aura of October had been shattered, leaving us with a haunting memory that would linger long after the autumn leaves had withered away. As we raced back to the car, my mind was a whirlpool of terror and confusion. Mark's face was as pale as the ghostly moon that now hung in the evening sky. His grip on my hand was unyielding as he navigated through the trail with a frantic pace. The image of his horrified expression outside the shack was etched into my mind, sending shivers down my spine. We reached the car, the eerie silence of the woods now replaced by the thundering beat of our hearts. The drive home was suffocated by the heavy cloak of fear and unanswered questions. Mark's knuckles were white as he gripped the steering wheel, his eyes fixated on the road ahead, yet seemed to be seeing something far beyond the dark winding road. I attempted to break the silence, to coax out of him the horror that he had witnessed, but my words were met with a wall of silence. He was locked in a battle with his own demons, a fight that seemed to be draining the life out of him with every passing second. Upon reaching home, Mark's first action was to make a call to the police. His voice trembled as he narrated our trespassing adventure and the unknown terror he stumbled upon. I sat there, watching him, the words on the tip of my tongue, but fear held them captive. He moved to the car for privacy, leaving me in a whirlpool of unsettling thoughts. The vibrant images of the morning were now overshadowed by the terror-stricken face of the love of my life. The veil of fear seemed to have cast a long, dark shadow on our innocent love, the mystery of the unseen horror wrapping its cold fingers around our hearts. The evening turned into night, but the darkness in our home was more than just the absence of light. It was the fear of the unknown, the monstrous images that my mind conjured, trying to fill in the blanks of the unseen horror. Mark sat on the porch, staring into the abyss, his face reflecting the torment that gnawed at his soul. I approached him, my steps hesitant, my heart yearning for the cheerful sparkle that once danced in his eyes. His eyes met mine, the torment in them sending a cold shiver down my spine. I sat beside him, my hand finding his, our fingers intertwining in a tight grip, 
as if holding on to each other could shield us from the haunting reality that loomed over our heads. But amidst the storm of fear and unanswered questions, the silence between us spoke volumes. It was the acceptance of the haunting reality, the fear of the unknown that now formed a silent pact between us. The promise of never venturing into the unknown, of never allowing curiosity to lead us into the abyss of terror. As the night wrapped the world in a cold embrace, the silence between us was a painful reminder of the unseen horror that had scarred our souls. The sweet whispers of October had turned into haunting screams that echoed through the silent halls of our hearts, leaving us with a terrifying memory that would haunt our October days for years to come. The days turned into nights, the leaves shed their vibrant hues, and the chill of winter set in. Yet the haunting memory of that October afternoon clung to our souls. Mark's eyes had lost their sparkle, replaced by a haunted look that sent shivers down my spine. He became a prisoner of his own mind, shackled by the horror of the unseen. His insomnia turned our warm, cozy nights into cold, lonely silences. Each night, he would lie beside me until I drifted off to sleep, his warmth a stark contrast to the chilling reality that haunted our lives. But as I slipped into the realm of dreams, he would retreat into the darkness of the living room, his silhouette against the pale moonlight a ghostly reminder of the unseen horror. I would wake up to find him sitting by the door, his eyes fixated on the darkness outside as if waiting for the unseen to knock on our door. The warm, hearty breakfasts turned into silent mornings. The laughter that once danced in the air vanished, leaving behind a silence that screamed the unspeakable terror that lurked in the corners of our home. The pact of silence we had formed was a heavy burden on my heart. The unanswered questions gnawed at my soul, yet the fear of pushing Mark into the abyss of terror kept my lips sealed. Our conversations turned into whispers, the words carefully chosen to avoid the dark alley of memories that threatened to engulf us. We tried to rekindle the joy of October traditions, the pumpkin patch visits, the cozy afternoons by the fireplace, and the soft melodies that once echoed through our home were attempts to chase away the haunting shadows. Yet, the terror-stricken expression that had clouded Mark's face that dreadful afternoon loomed over our lives like a dark cloud. The autumn leaves returned, painting the world with hues of gold and crimson. Yet, the beauty of October was overshadowed by the haunting memory that refused to fade. The joy that once bloomed in our hearts, welcoming the autumn breeze, was now a distant dream, replaced by a fear that wrapped its cold fingers around our hearts. But amidst the haunting darkness, the glimmer of hope in my heart refused to fade. The love that had blossomed amidst the autumn leaves was strong enough to weather the storm of fear and unanswered questions. Each day, I held on to the hope that someday, the unseen horror would release its grip on Mark's soul, setting us free from the haunting shadows that threatened to tear apart the fabric of our love. As I sat by the window, watching the leaves gently fall to the ground, I yearned for the cheerful sparkle to return to Mark's eyes. The love we shared was a beacon of hope amidst the haunting darkness that enveloped our lives. And as the leaves whispered the tales of undying love, I held on to the hope that someday the haunting memory would fade into oblivion, leaving behind the sweet essence of autumn that once defined our love. 